Prologue, Stealing My Own Thunder. What is the curve to which I refer in the title, you might ask? Secondly, you might want to know why I call it an American healthcare imperative. The answers to both questions are actually not complex. However, execution of solutions is quite another matter. However, before going on, I want to inject a question of my own. Why do economists and statisticians insist on calling straight lines curves? I'll talk a lot about a rigid demand curve, although in reality, it is as straight as a freshly sawn piece of white oak at an Alabama sawmill. There lies the rub. The U.S. healthcare delivery system is virtually perfectly inelastic. For those without economics degrees, let it suffice to say that we will purchase the same amount of healthcare services no matter what price we are charged for them. In fact, we will actually purchase incrementally more over time due to practice dynamics. Sadly, no matter how much financial pain is induced individually, the aggregate market behavior doesn't change. In many ways, we are actually healthcare junkies. Yet, it is a totally unsustainable model over time. The unit cost of services in the U.S. is far higher than any other developed country in the world. That is an indictment in and by itself. However, the real danger lies in the fact that there is no structural change on the horizon, whereby our systemic cost acceleration will be abated. Small nips at utilization control and broader risk pools are nothing more than window dressing relative to the real problem. I consider myself more left-leaning than right when it comes to health care. However, I concur with the GOP on one issue. The Affordable Care Act was never the answer to runaway costs. At best, it was the most recent stair-step measure. The acceleration in per capita claims and premiums was reduced by adding mandated young healthies into the system. That is, those who will pay premiums but not incur substantial claims. However, the new baseline was just the foundation for the same percentage growth in costs we have witnessed for decades perhaps more. Any professional healthcare economist who says they didn't see it coming needs to go back to their alma mater for some retraining. It was intuitively obvious from the start to the most casual observer. The only way insurance carriers were going to keep premiums down was annual reduction in benefits. That was exacerbated by foolish pricing structures that assumed more market share than ever occurred, so they were underpriced on day one didn't get the incremental healthy risk pool growth they anticipated, and were still subject to all the cost drivers that existed pre-Affordable Care Act. It was like General Custer was driving the ship. Please excuse the mixed metaphor. The truth is that the first two elements can be addressed relatively easily by national health care policy decisions. Pricing can be made right and the risk pools can be enhanced. I said relatively, because I recognize the political third rail mandating has become. Moreover, the influence of the incremental enrollment, while positive, is marginal. The actual elephant in the room is that damn inelasticity thing. I reject out of hand the notion that patient behavior will ever change enough to impact the underlying cost structure. I was personally involved with all types of attempts at utilization management in the 80s and 90s, from benefit-dependent second opinions to heavy-handed HMO medical directors. They took a couple of basis points off an employer's annual health care bill, notabene, and that of the Feds too. However, they didn't slow down the percentage growth in the underlying cost structure an iota. 
The United States in the last few years has been drifting away from a true laissez-faire wholesale market for healthcare component products. Implied threats to the developers and manufacturers by politicians have depressed unit pricing acceleration a tad. Nonetheless, it would be the height of naivete to believe the same forces are not just temporarily lurking in the shadows, waiting for a more pliable administration. When they re-emerge, it will be with a vengeance. They will do all they can to recover lost revenues from the lean years. The elasticity curve will once again be as straight as that Alabama board. The question is not whether it should be bent. There is a clear existential argument that says it must. The question is actually how to accomplish that. I only see three possible ways. Actually, it might be two due to one being clothed as another. The first is via the governmental regulation route. Ultimately, there needs to be downward pressure applied to the sources of healthcare goods and services. Read here a substantial bending of the elasticity curve. Simultaneously, the tendency of every small town to want the Taj Mahal of hospitals in their community needs to be dampened. Hypothetically, both could be accomplished through legislation. Pragmatically, that's merely a pipe dream. Indeed, one large southern state just enacted legislation that will allow hospital sprawl statewide, actual need notwithstanding. The other route might be a single-payer system whereby the federal government takes on all the financial risk. It could choose whatever level of payment for services it thought fair, essentially forcing the curve to be bent. Since the U.S. One Plan, my imaginary name for it, would be the only game in town, the producers who had sucked on the hind teat of inelasticity since the late 70s would no longer be able to set prices arbitrarily. Of course, they would also scream that U.S. One Plan damaged the integrity of the entire healthcare delivery system. They would immediately point to the state-of-the-art innovation that their pricing has historically allowed by funding research and development. That's actually a banal, well-worn mantra of Big Pharma. Moreover, there are several things to which they won't point, such as the Porsches all lined up in the parking lot, the multi-million dollar bonuses paid to officers, the upward slope of their common stock valuation over time, the average level of pay in the industry in general, and the tiny windows of time over which goodwill is amortized for new product rollouts. Of those, the last might be the most despicable. Whereas the payback period for a new item could easily be 20 years, it might indeed only be planned at 5. Of that, the U.S. market pays an inordinate share of the incremental expense that is passed along. For example, a million dollars in research and development investment on a 20-year goodwill schedule might allow $50,000 per year to be expensed. A 5-year schedule would allow $200,000 for the exact same item. It also causes a skewed positive impact on earnings in the sixth year. I don't suggest here that investment in research should be curtailed. I do suggest that amortization should be flattened and that domestic and foreign pricing be more balanced. Joe Lunchbucket, his family, and his employer should not be financing the welfare of a manufacturer via crushing premiums and point-of-service cost-sharing especially when someone on the other side of the world is utilizing the same product for 10 to 20% of the U.S. cost. I actually see a third way the curve might be bent. However, it might require antitrust regulation to be waived. What if blocks of insurance companies form purchasing pools? Instead of the U.S. One Plan making all the purchasing decisions via the federal government, maybe there could be three divisions, East, 
Central, and West. Perhaps setting up three specialty logistics companies, totally arm's length from insurance marketing and underwriting results, would be the way to go. Once again, they would have to have the authority to contract with providers of goods and service anywhere in the world. They should publicly state their mission, that is, to solely bend the curve. The three divisions might also be owned by a central holding company to ensure uniformity and interdivisional cooperation. Without getting too far afield in my thinking here, perhaps a Federal Reserve-type structure might work with the holding company's board, being akin to the Board of Governors. You might ask why I suggest the involvement of the insurance companies. The answer is twofold. They have gained significant experience in wholesale contracting over the managed care years, and participation would keep them from feeling like they had been disenfranchised by the new model. Ultimately, it seems to me that either the U.S. One plan or the regional division system could allow all comers to participate at Medicare-level costs or, if the curve is substantially bent, perhaps even below. If the regional divisions model was adopted, I could foresee a risk-sharing arrangement between the insurance companies and the U.S. government. On the front end, it would look to the average citizen like not much had changed. A policy would be issued on company paper. On the back end, it would be drastically different. In some ways, it would compare to the way Medicare uses insurance companies as their administrative interface from region to region. Although, in this case, I would suggest that the insurance companies continue to have downside financial risk, essentially a little skin in the game. Politicians and healthcare gurus can scream forever about pre-existing exclusions and heavy-handed mandates. However, note that not a single viable alternative to the Affordable Care Act has emerged after two years of the current administration's dominance and a receptive Senate. It's not because they don't want to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. The fact is they don't know how. Indeed, they can't even define what it is they are shooting at beyond raising the specter of the last administration. As you will see in the following section, that is actually quite a common problem. The perception of what constitutes health care reform varies from interest group to interest group. I don't want to give the left a free pass on all these issues. Most of the initiatives to date coming from that side are poorly founded. Ultimately, they might make sense. However, not a single candidate can say in fine detail how they would get from where we are today to where they suggest we should be. Two examples of inept execution come to mind the Medicaid Christmas tree, and the IRS Health and Human Services Regulatory Storm associated with the Affordable Care Act. The actual events were wholly unexpected by the most ardent supporters of each. As I said above, bending the curve is actually an existential imperative. It is not just for the viability of the health care delivery system. The financial consequences are actually devastating on both micro and macro levels. What happens when limited family resources have to be allocated between health care and college for the kids? Sooner or later, U.S. society will inevitably be dumbed down in the aggregate. On the macro level, one must accept the fact that there are only a finite number of dollars in the U.S. economy, the Fed adding to the money supply notwithstanding. If health care expenditures are rising as a percent of GDP, what is being forgone in the process? Indeed, what has already been forgone relative to what might have been? The manufacturers would argue that the incremental dollars are being reinvested in the health of society, 
and therefore have substantial investment value. I can remember the graduate professor of finance I had while working on my MBA. He would have us rank every alternative investment by net present value and internal rate of return. I'm not sure I could even define the actual investment in healthcare dollars. Where did the incremental money actually get spent and on what? I certainly couldn't compute a net present value for the alleged investment yet I could easily do so for a dozen infrastructure investments around the United States. Crumbling bridges are obvious. Less so are big pharma shots at blockbuster drugs that turn out to be duds. I will reach back to my Irish roots for hyperbole here. We must bend the curve or perish. Less dramatically said, ignoring it isn't an option any longer. Those white-haired men in D.C. might last it out. However, their grandchildren certainly won't. I have couched all my above comments in economic imperative terms. Let me adjust that a bit. It's also a moral imperative. I'm not talking about the morality associated with 28 million Americans not having formalized health care. In fact, I mean the fiduciary obligation U.S. leaders have to all Americans. To that end, I would prefer the showboaters stand aside and let the professionals go to work.